Welcome to the Life Optimized Show, where every week you'll hear fascinating and introspective conversations with inspiring thought leaders from all around the world to help you optimize your business, leadership, and life. Now, here's your host, Dev Singh, international executive, business, and leadership coach, and self-professed philosopher and examiner of what makes the most optimized people in the world tick. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Life Optimized Show. I'm very excited today to have a guest on the show who I've been wanting to have pretty much since uh, day one of launching the show. Uh, his name is Matthew Blom, and I, I'm, I'm extremely, um, extremely honored to have Matthew on the show, uh, mainly because for the first time, not only am I having a friend, I've had many friends on the shows before, but I'm actually having um, a coach on the show who has had a profound impact on me as, um, as, as Matthew has been my coach uh, over a period of time. Uh, for a while, particularly uh, in the period when I was traveling across Europe. If you've listened to the show, uh, you would have known about my little uh, rendezvous away from Australia and uh, the adventures that I went on. And I found it extremely helpful to have somebody who, well, I did find the idea of it very helpful to have somebody who would uh, kind of keep me in check with my progress at a meta level uh, in a kind of objective observation level. But the value that uh, Matthew brought to the table, the value that he gave me in challenging me and enable to being able to uh, encourage and facilitate me to question my sense and perception of reality and my relationship with my own belief systems and and, and things are very at a very profound level was absolutely astonishing. He's probably um, he's probably one of the only people who knows me as well as he does uh, in the world, considering how much I've shared with him. So that's also very exciting um and he's he's extremely good at what he does rather than going into an introduction of a very technical nature um, i wanted to kind of tell you about that so that you have some contextual understanding of my relationship with matthew and how much i respect and uh, and admire him and the work that he does and i also wanted to um, i also wanted to read out uh, three questions that are on his website and, and those questions basically start off his uh, introduction and they read, is suffering or pain necessary? What's the fastest way to create lasting change? How transformable is our life? How much wonderful can you take? And I have to admit to you that when I first read those questions on Matthew's website, um, I thought, oh, okay, there's a marketing cliche. He's, he's probably picked that up from uh, you know, a few people that I've learned how to write copy from, uh, and, and this was, you know, a couple of years ago. But as I got to know Matthew, and as I got to actually work with him and, and have that amazing um, pleasure and privilege of working with Matthew, I, I realized that those questions have so much depth in representing um, the, the depth of the work that Matthew does and, and really dealing with people's relationship with their suffering and their pain. and really dealing with their relationship with how they can create change in their life. Um, it, it's truly mind-blowing stuff, and I'm hoping that some of that magic will be recreated in this conversation. So, Matthew, thank you so much for being here. It's, it's a real honor. Um, I'm, I'm very, very glad that we could make this happen. Me too. I'm glad to be here. It's <laughs> nice to see you, and I'm delighted to hear that you feel there's been value in our relationship, because it's definitely felt that way to me. And um, I have no idea what's going to happen today, and hopefully something that is of value to those who are listening will, will take place. 
Yeah, I think so. I think so. And and you know the the amazing thing is that the value is still being uncovered day by day. I reflect back on conversations that we had and um, and things that came up uh, as a very direct result of our conversations and coaching sessions. And there is still integration happening. There is still processing happening. And I think that's a credit to you. It's also a credit to the coaching process and just of working with a coach over a period of time um, as well. And that's something that I'm always very inspired to advocate to people and kind of share with my friends and, and, and family and anyone I care about, which is what I like to think is this audience really. Um, and, you know, I, I hope that that's something that they can take away from this conversation as well, just to understand the value of it. I thought there would probably be no better person to ask and, and probably no better question to start off with than to then to ask you, how did you get into the line of work of being, quote, unquote, a coach? And, and what does that even mean? Hmm. I'll start with the second part of it first of what does it mean? Because I'm, I'm struck by what you said of that I may be the person that knows you more than anyone. Um, because there's, it's a unique relationship with a coach where hopefully a good coach puts their own needs aside for the time that one is interacting with their client and so when I'm with with someone my attention is all it's a relief actually because it's not on me and my own life and what I might be dealing with I get to pour my attention and care and attention into someone else who is asking for and look longing for something different and it's a very rare situation where we we are interacting with someone where where we would be the sole focus of attention in friendships usually it's back and forth and that's as it should be in some ways but here it's every question every guidance every metaphor every challenge every point out is directed at how can we facilitate what you're longing for and looking for and it's it's a powerful process in that way simply for the fact that it doesn't exist in any of their context and in a way it's unfortunate that money needs to be involved at all because I think that historically maybe that, that happens in more contexts but for today's day and age it's something that we look for someone who has expertise in an area and says they've been through some things and therefore have a map have more of a map at least of where you might be or someone might be that wants to uh, find treasure somewhere and you can guide them and say oh you're off the path a little there have you, have you seen that what do you see what do you think um, how's it going over here have you looked at this perspective um, how long is do you do you even see that you're kind of blindly acting in this way or whatever it might be mm. and because it's from an observer perspective and I I wouldn't have an agenda necessarily in your life then those questions can come from a different place versus someone who might have their own need involved or have their own preferences or things they want for you because it would do something for them and in this case ideally it's because it would be the best for you mm. so I see that as a pretty remarkable uh, position and why coaching can be so powerful or any relationship that's along that along those lines um, in terms of how I got into it uh, I would say I grew up with a model because my father is a is a pastor a Christian Lutheran pastor so 
I looked at him and he would be up in front of people as a guide, as a mentor, for better or for worse, because I see some real significant downsides of that as well. And I've encountered those in my life too, where I end up um, acting superior or that I am, I'm literally up on a pulpit compared to the masses of people. And therefore it's, it's hard to become humble or smaller than, or to, uh, which we can talk more about because that's a lot of what I'm up to these days. But I saw that model in him and then got curious as to what is, uh, actually from a tennis coach, uh, probably my first <laughs> models of coaching were in, um, in the athletic world. And two of my tennis coaches, one in high school and then one in college, were very profound in my life. The one in college really opened my eyes to mysticism and spirituality and esoteric concepts and books about the Orient and Asia. And, and I had grown up in North Dakota in the United States, very, like in the dead center of the United States, uh, quite conservative, not, uh, I wouldn't say very open-minded or exposed to much. And I got curious enough that I wanted to go to Asia. So I spent about, after I graduated from college, I spent about six years there. And that was a long study in how unique and how varied the human experience is. That there's, um, there's not one way that's right. And if there's not just one way that's right, there's so many ways that we do this, then our beliefs and our concepts that we get enmeshed in, we get become a fish in the water that we don't even see what we're surrounded by, that those are changeable, those are, uh, they are not fixed in any certain way. So I could see part of my own culture that where a lot of the problems and difficulties were culture-wide because of a certain um, presuppositions we would have, because of certain beliefs that are in the culture, uh, and the same true over there, certain things that they might be stuck in because of the way that they are brought up and, and believe. So I think that started to put a little grain of sand in the oyster, let's say, of, huh, this is not universal and human suffering is unique based on culture. And then to dive down even further and to realize individual people based on their upbringing, based on their family situation based on their life experiences based on the meaning that they made based on things that happened all start to create a conglomerate of their life and then from that conglomerate things become fixed and say and they basically are saying to themselves this is the way this is and when this is the way this is if that works for someone then you're doing great and it can be a support to you but if this is the way it is and it keeps causing suffering again and again and again then how can this is the question I started to work with? Is that suffering necessary? Is it um, is it required for human growth and potential? And maybe it is in some way, but some of it I could start to see was based on some false premises. And so then I got interested in how can one powerfully work with repatterning, rearranging, reexamining, questioning, so that new answers could be discovered that support someone in their life now and going forward, not living out of old, outdated systems. So that preceded me into communication. I was a trainer and student of nonviolent communication for a while, and then got into neurolinguistics and found that to be um, extremely powerful. And I met a man uh, in Marin County in California 
who not only had the power of the neurolinguistics, which is a very powerful tool, but brought this heart-based um, holistic element to it and started and could see the system of someone as a whole, not only their individual system, but then the, uh, the family system which they came from. And now I'm looking at even a spiritual system uh, behind that. But that's the, that's the progression. And, um, and then as an, on an individual level, I got into it because... I am a terrible employee and <laughs> don't really want to have a job and I have a certain freedom of being that I wanted to maintain and so becoming a coach and then going through the whole world after being a monk for basically five years hmm. had to learn how to market and sell and this whole rigmarole of everything I'd pushed away and thought was evil money business the whole capitalist system I had thrown off and said this is this is what is destroying the world is kind of my mindset when I left in my early 20s and had a lot of vim and vigor and then I came back and realized wow I need to reintegrate this because it's a missing step it is part of this human experience it seems to relate to money to relate to um, some sort of work and and uh, doing what what turns you on ideally and so that the marriage of those two dropped me into the work I've been doing now for I don't know, eight years, something like that. Mm. Thank you. You, <clears throat> you, um, you mentioned two sort of two to three stages in terms of the personal and the family systems, and then it's a spiritual system, the higher system as well. It's really interesting when when I have these conversations with people on the show. Sometimes, almost magically, um, little elements will creep up that will be so reflective and representative of stuff that's going on in my life and. Uh, at the time of recording that is and I was just having this conversation literally last night with a friend of mine about how um, basically certain restrictions and restraints that she was experiencing in her life were a projection of certain influences from her um, her religious and cultural dogmas and I you know I presented that notion to her and she literally turned around and just said what does religion and culture have to do with it? And mm-hmm. I thought, no, okay, well, you know, with, how is it separate? And I find that it's quite interesting that a lot of people think that religion and culture are these two very separate concepts that you can access um, at, uh, I guess, on demand uh, as, as a resource. And, and I guess there are parts of it which you can access as on, on demand as a resource if, if it works for you. And suddenly, um, you know, spiritual rituals and practices are pretty much the same thing as well. Mm-hmm. But why is it that so many people categorically segment it away from it being a much more holistic influence on the the core of their identity? And I wonder how people how people can do that. I mean, it, to me, it seems almost obvious that every influence that you've had that is going to um, direct or drive in some way or other your belief systems is going to have an influence and impact on your consequences in life as well. It's it's going to be at the cause end of those effects. And yet so many people are perfectly capable of absolutely rejecting that notion. Mm-hmm. And, and it seems to cause them even more suffering. At least that's been my observation. So firstly, mm-hmm. I guess, do you even agree with that? <laughs> and secondly, if you do, why, why does that happen? Why do people suffer in that way? I do agree with a lot of it. Uh, I think religion is an easier one to to look at 
than culture, we can explore that too. Of this, the word I use for it is compartmentalization. Mm. And it would make sense that your friend would say, I don't think it affects me in these other places because at least every, almost every religious path I've seen is about compartmentalization. That there are places, usually like on a Sunday, where for an hour you show up at a certain place and that is the religious compartment of your life. And very little, if any of it, uh, then gets transferred to when you're making dinner or you're at your job or you're having a fight with your wife or whatever it is. Um, because it's, it's lived as if that exists in one place and one time and certain parts of us show up for that but it doesn't transfer over to the rest. So it would make sense that she wouldn't think that it does. And then the other with, with religion and culture, I think um, what I've seen is that we become eventually blind to that which we are swimming in. Uh, so you had a conversation last night, I'll re uh, re refer to one I was having last night, which is about the process of finding authentic and real humility. And that requires seeing oneself as at one's actual size instead of this puffed up version and uh, it came up because I've struggled with that and a, a big part of it is something I don't I'm usually blind to which is being an American male American white male in particular of how much privilege and uh, assumption and everything that uh, I'm supposed to be knowledgeable, know what's going on, be on top of things, be a leader, be superior, all this stuff that was subtly and not so subtly communicated to me everywhere I went. That women, uh, ethnic minorities, blacks, I'm talking more in the United States because mm -hmm. that's my cultural reference, um, they they would have another step to go through first of like getting to like I am I am important as an individual uh, whereas I got a supersized uh, version of that that I'm now trying to break down and if I just go about looking at this without that knowledge um, it's a tougher road because it is so pervasive it is ingrained into the very way I operate in my day and think about what I'm going to do and the fact that I have this ultra plush lifestyle comparatively by very little of my own effort. So much of it was bestowed upon me and that I get because of simply where I was born and my skin color. So that's another example of the, of the culture part of it. Um, going through school, going to jobs, whatever it is, I just, I walk in and I have I remember learning about this in college about the invisible white knapsack and like it just there's stuff that I have uh, that I carry around by nature of my culture and what my culture says about uh, males like me and so I think roundabout to your question um, to deny that it has any power over one's life is, is deleting a whole lot it's it's pretty hard if you can look honestly that where you grew up, what kinds of things you got exposed to in your culture don't have an effect is, uh, I'd, I'd have to ask someone that question, like how they see that it doesn't have any impact because it seems pretty pervasive. <clears throat> hmm. I want to empathize immediately with some people who I know might be listening to this initially and 
um, if you will, their, uh, their critter or croc brain might be shutting down a little bit and going to sleep. And the reason for that is because I guess the question that I want to ask will explain the reason itself. What is the usefulness to the fish to become more self-aware about the water that the fish is swimming in? Because these influences are so pervasive, as you said, and mm-hmm. they're just, it, it's almost, it almost seems overwhelming to consider that, you know, I'm going to be aware of all the systemic influence that my religion has had on me, my culture has had on me, my family has had on me, my spirituality has had on me, my education has had on me, my um, media exposure has had on me, to categorically go through and really become aware and then, I guess, analyze to a certain extent the influence that has had on you. Why should people care about even doing that or even thinking about doing it? I don't think anyone should care unless they see a downside, unless they see a cost. Like mm-hmm. there's no motivation to explore any of that if you think that you're doing great. And, and that could be someone's experience. Like I'm happy with this. I, and most people, it's, it's better. It's easier to turn a blind eye to it. Um, for myself and others who have explored it, it's if you continually run up against something and can't find a way to get around it or through it or beneath or above it, then you might have the motivation to turn around and look at something that might that seems like it's behind you and not relevant. Mm. But that behind you and not relevant may be the very thing that's mo- that's most important to look. And turning your head around is an action you've never done. So it's it's not to critique if someone hasn't done it that they should, but if they uh, if they're finding that they're not able to achieve or get certain results in life, that could be results on a very tangible level or it could be more of a result on an, an emotional feeling level just in relationship to life. Um, then I think it's worth checking out. Okay. And, and how, how does someone identify whether it is or not? Because the reason I ask is because something that, um, something that I suffer, I guess, is when I observe people in denial of this. And the reason I say that they're in denial is not to come from a place of judgment, but to say that they are suffering, but they're so good that when you, at, they're so good at doing something, which is when you call them out on their suffering and say, look, you are suffering, you are in pain right now, you are complaining to me about this suffering, then all of a sudden they'll say, oh, no, no, it's not a big deal. It's just, this is, you know, I'm just having a chat with you. And, and they'll, um, they'll downsize it, I guess, they'll downplay it right. uh, very significantly. It's uh, it's a tough place. I empathize with where you're coming from with that, like, because if if you have some sense that complaining about something is actually suffering, they may not have that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Suffering and talking about our problems is often a, a tremendous form of social currency, hmm. and we haven't we don't we don't know often other ways talking about our problems or our relationships or our plans is uh, is most of 90% or more of most the content of most conversations. So to call it suffering, if someone were to really look at that and confront it, that would be a really significant thing to take on. Yeah. Like, oh my gosh, I would have to look at most of how I think about my day, most of how I make choices, most of how I talk to other people. So it's much, much easier to write it off and say, oh, no, no, it's okay. And they'll look for another person who they can continue it with, mm. especially if they don't see it as self-destructive. If it's not in their own experience self-destructive, then another person from the outside pointing it out may or may not have much impact. 
if they're not looking for it and actively seeking it. It can be maybe a year later or three years later or, or a month later, hmm. they might reflect on it and go, wow, that was of, that was significant. I wonder what he meant by that. Or I start to see this. But if, if they're not looking for it, it's, it's part of the dilemma of where, how do you meet someone where they're at and, and allow them access to another level? And are they looking for that? Or are they looking for, I, I want the next person to complain to because that's what feels good to me. Yeah, it, it is really a dilemma. It's something that I've, um, I've learned the hard way as well over time that you, you know, basically, I mean, in a very simplistic form, you can take a horse to water. Uh, you can't force it to drink. And when I was younger and I had just started uh, learning about NLP and not even coaching really, and especially not properly, but I had basically just an innate desire to counsel people and, and to coach people. Um, I was very aggressive about it, very, um, uh, I guess, forcing my wisdom down people's throat or what I thought was wisdom and, you know, really was quite ignorant, in fact. Um, and, and a lot of times people would get offended. A lot of times they would be a running up uh, point where they would be profoundly appreciative. And I was probably stroking my own ego at that point to, you know, share with them uh, all of this stuff that I know. And then they would get to a breaking point where they'd just be like, you know, please F off. Um, you're just yeah. way too intimidating. This is ridiculous, etc., etc. And I remember something that has really stuck with me very profoundly that I learned when I started learning coaching properly um, in a framework, and it was with um, with Jeff and Kane, uh, Jeffrey Slater and, and Kane Minkus, um, that they basically said that when you're coaching, what you know is a liability, and you really need to have a certain sense of clearing your own judgments and clearing your own preconceived notions about what is right and what is wrong in order to actually help somebody help themselves because that's essentially what it comes down to that they need to have the experience of their suffering they need to be aware of it and then they need to have the motivation to deal with it that leads me to a bit of a um, a philosophical question around the model of the world if the model of the world is that everything is holographic and everything is really just our perception of reality everything is completely subjective then if somebody is not experiencing their behavior to be self-destructive, can it still be self-destructive? Or is it only self-destructive if they're actually having the experience of it being self-destructive? If a tree falls in a forest and no one's there to hear it, is that... Exactly. <laughs> it's like that yeah. kind of question. Um, well, I go back to something I alluded to earlier is that I think it only becomes self-destructive once someone can verify that for themselves. And so a good coach or a good teacher or someone, uh, in my opinion, through all of their knowledge and wisdom and skill would give someone the tools to be able to self-verify that. Because hmm. I think that's the only time that someone actually takes action. Anything else, if you were to say something or someone says something to someone else, and they, they, they trust you, that will only take them so far because then, then's change is pretty slow in my opinion. Whereas if someone sees it in themselves, verifies it, and they're hungry for something different, they can use every moment of every day to learn, experiment, and move through that in a powerful way. So it may not be exactly your question, but it becomes only, maybe it, only, it becomes relevant self-destruction only when they verify it. 
and others can probably see it. You know, if they asked five of their closest friends, uh, when when they do this, do you see that they suffer? They could say yes, but until that person sees it themselves, it's not really relevant. Mm. They will continue to do it because they think it's they think it's good, or at least they think it's the best option they have. And unless they have something else, a hope of something else, it takes takes it's, it's quite a pill to swallow to see if something that you're doing has been really destroying you. Uh, I think it takes a hungry person for change. It takes a strong and heroic person, really. To me, that is that is true heroism. When someone can do what it takes to turn the mirror around and look with an honest view, a, an objective view on themselves and their actions and what they create of, wow, this thing that I thought was really good for me maybe one of the worst things possible mm -hmm. including like what you were alluding to earlier of when you when you became an early student of NLP and other things like oh cool now I have a new way and I'm, I guess I shouldn't use you but someone could take that and go great I have another way to stay safe in the world now I'll just process everyone around me and ask them all these powerful questions so I don't have to do anything and I can mm -hmm. look really good really helpful really superior and stay in this comfortable position and then they become a coach and go on getting paid to destroy themselves yeah and that's a tough one to look at especially if your income is lined up with it mm -hmm. so if that's the case in a way it's it's like can you can you or someone feel where it'd be hard to make change uh, like someone else has a difficulty where it becomes like I'm so identified with this that I don't know if I could change or if I'd want to if, I don't know if I could take that size of pill yet yeah I'm, I'm really glad you actually brought that up because it's not really something I was thinking of um, of talking about but mainly because I don't like focusing on the on the bitterness of it but there is a lot of bitterness in the coaching community about the deregulate well not the deregulation but lack of regulation and um, I guess uh, vetting process of the motivations behind how people become coaches and I see a lot of coaches in my career and you know I mean I'm more of a consultant than a coach anyway but um, obviously I hang around a lot of coaches and I do see a lot of people who go into coaching because they vicariously want to either deal with their stuff um, by helping other people which I think is also quite dangerous or they want to deny dealing with their stuff and ignore dealing with their stuff because it's a distraction to just be working with other people and actually you, you said it more eloquently than I could what's your what's your observation of this what's your perspective and certainly you know I consider myself very lucky that I didn't get to the stage of um, being so egocentric about um, I guess serving people in that particular way with those tools that I wanted to show off at the point where I got paid for it because when you start getting paid for it and you start exchanging the value I think other people are that much more invested in you and they're kind of compelled to invest that much more trust in you. And when they do, and under the surface, I guess you're doing it for self-serving reasons. Um, it, it is very dangerous. And unfortunately, I've, you know, I've seen a lot of people get burnt out there, both as clients and coaches, uh, because of that relationship. And obviously, I've been, you know, personally, I've been very fortunate to have a coach like you um, to to support me and, and other people that I've worked with as well. Uh, but there's just there's a lot of them. There's so many people the i think the the very interesting question that i want to ask is 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 the work of coaching that we do or in fact even the work of nurturing at all whether you're a nurse or a doctor or 
um, you know, a, a lawyer who comes at legal service from that perspective, is it by default uh, um, a vehicle to attract people who are self-destructive to some extent? Hmm. I've never thought of it in that direct way. I think it's a really interesting question. Is it by nature self-destructive? I'd like to think not. Um, but is it prone to it? Quite probably. That the kind of people who would be drawn to it... Um, I mean, I think about maybe the other extreme. Let's say like someone who becomes a plumber. Mm-hmm. Plumber seems less prone to self-destructive egocentric behavior. Yeah. Um, they're, they're going in and fixing some pipes and probably getting in, doing their job and leaving. Um, I don't know how many plumbers are looking to get a standing ovation um, or looking to, uh, I don't know, polish the uh, chrome toilet uh, tubes more better than everyone else. Um, it's, it's more of a on-the-ground kind of service. And these other ones are, are prone to it because they involve a certain image with them. Uh, you mentioned like lawyers and doctors and coaches, um, even presenters or uh, people in the limelight. There's a lot of, lot of possible motivation they could be doing it for the accolades they receive, for the boosting up of self-worth and self-importance. Mm. So I think quite, quite easily it's in there. I mean, the more that that's the case, the more it's it's prone to self-destruction. I think maybe in a more extreme example would be uh, professional athletes or musicians, where they're they're clearly there as entertainment. They're clearly there as we want you to look the best, be the best, do the best. So their internal drive certainly must be: um, I need to be in constant competition and better than everyone around me. And to escape that in that culture would be quite rare. So I, th- I think it's, it's definitely uh, prone to that, maybe more than some other occupations. And I don't know, like you said, like a vetting process or something, like who would do that? Who would be in a high enough state to be able to do that accurately? Hmm. Uh, for better or for worse, it seems to be a part of the system as it, as it exists right now. And it'd be for the clients to vet it. Did yeah. the clients have discernment that they could see, oh, this person, do I want to be like that? Because they might be aspiring to that in themselves. Oh, I'm attracted to how egocentric that coach is because they look they look like they're doing well in it. Mm. It looks attractive. And the coach or presenter could be putting that on of everything is good up here and for the for the hour a week that we spend together or for the day and a half that you see me on stage, they can hold their breath and put on a good act. But do you know the rest of their life? Do you know what's going on behind the scenes? It's, uh, I've heard this once, and I thought it was really remarkable. We, we often compare our internal suffering to other people's highlight reels uh, on Facebook or on, or just what they, they choose to say about themselves. Yeah. Um, and if they're presenting something, they're of course going to put the best lens on it possible. And that seems to be part of the system. If they have something to sell you, they want to sell you the, uh, the dream of, of perfection, of it being your problems going away. So I think that it is very much uh, laden 
it's a minefield for anyone going into that to to avoid it to not get sucked into it somehow hmm that's, that's interesting i mean a lot of questions are coming up for me right now but one that's really sticking out is the relationship between what we've just been talking about in terms of um, the motivations behind coaching and then how that draws certain people in to invest in that as well and what their motivations might be to be drawn towards a particular kind of coach mm-hmm. and then also a thing you mentioned or alluded to earlier about how you brought um, money back into the picture and this notion of you know capitalism is not so evil back into the picture um, for you know everyone listening and, and you obviously know this Matthew very well that I'm definitely not an anti-capitalist in any way um, I believe in conscious capitalism uh, or at least I would like to and I'm, I'm constantly exploring that as well however I've recently started realizing that no matter which way you put it, money always creates and adds um, a strange kind of energy in between people when they're conscious of it, when there's a relationship of um, somebody supporting someone else. And when there's an exchange of money going on, it's almost like a weight drops into that interaction for a period of time until that weight's resolved and then the work can continue and move on. Mm. However, in our in our sort of world and, and with people that we've trained with, there's a lot of focus on this, well, essentially this notion that when people pay, they pay attention, and when people pay more, they pay more attention. And, you know, our um, mutual friends, uh, uh, Jeff and Kane, used to say this a lot in their trainings as well. And I used to think it was very true, and lately I've been questioning it. And the reason I've been questioning it is because I realize that not everybody is actually motivated to confront their suffering just because they put a few dollars on the table. Some people are actually distracted by that. Some people are certainly more motivated by it. Um, But some people are just, uh, it it just doesn't occur to them. It doesn't mean anything to them because their motivation is actually to deal with the suffering. There are so many variables, my point being, that it seems that there's this pervasive culture, especially in in the coaching as entrepreneurship model um, about money being the centerpiece and charging being the centerpiece around work and yet I've experimented with this and a lot of experiences I've had of coaching people um, not only not only for free but actually removing the commercial element altogether to say that look let's be clear we're not friends I will coach you but this is not a commercial arrangement at all I'm just here to serve you that's it that's all it is and it's it's gone really well and I guess a part of me was expecting that they wouldn't be paying attention because they didn't pay me anything, but they did. So mm-hmm. how does this work for you? Um, you know, what, what perspective can you share for people who are kind of grappling with that advice, but their ecology maybe doesn't quite align with it about mm-hmm. money being so important and then, you know, you need to raise your rates to a certain level in order to basically impact people and do good work and all of this mm-hmm. kind of uh, funny business. Oh, it's such a rich question. I'm really enjoying it. I've done a lot of exploration around this one. Um, and I think it's still in progress. Uh, yeah, likewise, actually. Yeah, the first thing is, you know, that adage of if you, um, when you pay, you pay attention. Um, there's a few things I think can be understood from that. And one way I agree with the paying attention part but the way that it's used in that, the way that that phrase is co-opted in the, in the um, entrepreneurial coaching world 
is when you pay money and you pay attention. Mm. Whereas there's a lot of ways to pay attention and a lot of ways to care about things and to appreciate something, appreciate even that word being used as a emotional state and also appreciate as in like money can grow and it appreciates and investment appreciates. So that paying attention, I've even explored to the, to the level of saying thank you to someone. If, if you've paid attention to something they've done and been there, do you need to say thank you? Or is thank you a, a add-on? Is it unnecessary? Is it simply a cultural machine, a mechan mechanized response? That may be a little too obscure to go into, but the, that idea that it needs to be through money, um, it can be used as a vehicle if someone's actual motivation and hunger isn't high enough for them to pay attention to their life and to see something. So when they put down a bunch of something that val that's valuable to them, which would be their money, mm -hmm. then in certain cases, I think it can have them have shocked them into paying attention, but it will be uh, temporary unless it's replaced by something else. So you've probably seen that in the entrepreneurial role where someone will buy a product and hope that it will do something or pay for coaching even. Mm -hmm. and that might sustain them for a week or two or maybe a month or buy a person uh, a membership to a gym like oh I'm paying this hundred dollars a month that means I'm gonna start exercising hmm. not necessarily if that that may be useful as an initial thrust but then there needs to be something that you're paying attention to after that that continues to have it be valuable for you so there was one other thing you were bringing up what was it about paying attention and do you remember the second part of what you talked about I thought it was so rich no I guess I was just really I don't remember specifically but <clears throat> I was really just challenging I was challenging that notion I think a lot of entrepreneurs or, or coaches who insist on calling themselves entrepreneurs who happen to do coaching they get caught in, and you can probably tell from the tone of my voice that there's a lot of, <laughs> a lot of stigma that I have around this as well, uh, because right. I've been through it. Um, th this notion of getting hung up on this idea that I have to charge and increase my rates and you know, do a certain level of this, when in actual fact, initially what the motivation was, was just to help people and yeah. help the kind of people who, you know, for them, it's not even that they can't afford it or they can't afford it or they could afford more than you're charging. It's not about that at all. It's actually that money just doesn't come into the picture for their motivation because they just have a problem and they want it dealt with. And yet... Yes. But saying they want coaching isn't necessarily there enough to deal with it. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, there's another part of this. So, like, I have, a, I have a teacher in my life who charges no money whatsoever and I can see how utterly essential that is if there was money involved, it would complicate and rearrange this value system internally quite dramatically like you were talking about. Yes, yes. I think that but was the second makes, part of what I was saying. Yeah, what makes, it, uh, what makes it very different though, and this is where it becomes personal to me and I think anyone involved in this business, is as far as I'm concerned, my teacher has no need. He, he could leave us all, you know, he's <laughs> like there's <laughs> nothing that's keeping him here 
it's really he's actually in a place and he's the only human being I know is in this place where his well is full and, and flowing over so he's giving from the overflow from the excess mm-hmm. it's like why wouldn't you hand out the you know dish out the water that's you're not going to make use of it's like it's because it's he's tapped into something I believe that's just filling him up constantly the rest of us that ain't the case we are we are walking around trying to get our needs met all the time and we do it through exchanging with other needy people mm-hmm. it's one way to look at our interactions so one way to make that exchange is through money now this would be for you to say I don't know what it is if you are coaching someone for um, without money involved and saying this is not a friendship this is the relationship you're gonna do this and I'm here just to serve well that's probably deleting the exchange that you're getting that there's something that is a need in you that you want to be fulfilled by this relationship this interaction mm-hmm. whatever that may be um, and that's other relationships are like that a, a typical traditional man-woman relationship would have it uh, I'll pay for our you know our basic needs I'll take care of our housing I'll pay for our trips you uh, you cook the meals you give me the sex I want you uh, raise the children you tell me how wonderful I am and adore me and we'll have a great relationship mm-hmm. we have the exchange we will be paying each other in that way and both people are needy and they find each other like that and I think that's what most most of the time we're doing in a lot of relationships so that one in coaching where money gets involved and their own need of like you know to come from the place I'm doing this for you I'm charging it so that you'll appreciate this more is probably pretty dishonest most of the time mm. um, it it must to a large extent I think that's that's a nice frame to put on it so the coach can feel okay to charge money and raise their rate and do all of that you're listening to the life optimized show with Dev Singh if you're enjoying the show so far Remember to leave a rating and review on iTunes and subscribe to the podcast. You can also keep up with all the episodes and show notes over at thelifeoptimizedshow.com. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. I'm glad you kind of called that out. I think when I, when I deal with people who, I'm, well, when I coach people and I try and remove that commercial exchange from it, mm-hmm. one thing that I do is I acknowledge that I'm not removing the element of exchange. Because I, I like the fact that you say it's um, it's really just two needy people coming together. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Um, it's but I think you need to. I think it's more active, but not bad. Uh, no, absolutely. Yeah, that's 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 perfect. Um, and I think when I step into that kind of a relationship, I do acknowledge at least to myself that look, it's not. I'm I'm getting something out of this. Sometimes I joke about it as well. Actually, with people, I say, you know, you think I'm being generous here, but I'm being perfectly selfish as well. <laughs> what I'm getting out of this is the self satisfaction that you know I, I can. Um, I can be of support to your mission and then sometimes if it's a commercial arrangement in the sense that it's a um, it's a commercial arrangement on their part because I'm helping them you know deal with something that might help them in their business or whatever and I essentially um, just jokingly say that look I'm just like Batman I just want you to tell your friends about me <laughs> you know it's nothing uh, it is not altruistic I guess that's the point of it that I'm not doing this completely selflessly just because my well is overflowing. Um, I, I don't. I don't have that pretense. Yet it makes me ask this very crazy question that just popped into my head: Is that 
that exchange is very, very different to the exchange of money. The energy of that, or the dynamic, as you said, of that relationship changes when the exchange ceases to be about that exchange of just, I will serve you as a trained coach, and in exchange, I will get the self-satisfaction of knowing that I helped you. And whether you want to call that ego validation or you want to call that just simply contentment or you know pleasure, um, I don't know, that's a, that's a bit of a thing as well, I guess. But <clears throat> there's a difference between the dynamic that that creates and the dynamic that gets created when you're exchanging money for it. Mm-hmm. And, and it makes me wonder, I guess, a very large, um, you know, a thought experiment kind of way, that what would happen if there were, a, you know, thousands of trained coaches in the world, as there are, who were regulated to only be voluntarily working, so that they had to supplement their their income or satisfy that particular need for uh, for money elsewhere, but they were still motivated enough to go out there and coach, but they could not exchange money for it. Hmm. I think we call them good friends. Right. Okay. <laughs> well, ideally, I mean, not not all of our good friends are trained, but yeah, that that is before coaching existed or before therapy existed or before anything is we had people in our lives that cared about us and were connected to us and our lives were very different in at least in my picture of how it was Mm. we weren't so damn busy and wrapped up in the hustle and the rush that we have nowadays and so people could sit down and know each other know each other really really well know each other about the wholeness of their life now they may have been shitty in terms of being a listener ask questions but there was the care for sure and we are so devoid of that at least in the western culture I know that we now have to pay people I remember a a client coming to me and she told me like she'd been in therapy for 10 years I'm like really what like what were you getting from that how I was shocked I'm like I don't think anyone should be a therapist for 10 years is really my underlying thought um but I asked her about it and she said, well, they became my only friend. Like, ouch, that that was someone's experience they needed to pay to experience friendship hmm. um, was unfortunate. And so my goal with them was to help figure out like what's in the way of you being able to have a natural human relationship with other people that people call friendship. So I think that's one level of it. The other is, I think a more direct answer to your question would be, then it means, and this is where I've come down to charging for the work that I do, is uh, do I want to basically have two jobs? And um, do I want to have something else that, that brings the income in and then do this part of it for free? And I chose that I wanted to pair the two, for better or for worse, and we could explore that as well. But uh, it's an interesting question, and it would mean that I wouldn't be able to do this work as much as I do. It would mean, um, who knows, I may be not able to study it as fully or go as deeply into it if it's more my single focus versus if I had another job as, I don't know, an accountant or something that brought in uh, money. Hmm. Uh, but it's a beautiful vision of a world where people are, are trained and skilled and I feel blessed in a way that I have that here with my teacher and my community is that we are here for each other and we're here for each other in a way that a coach could never be and that we are in the kitchen while we're preparing dinner and something and I would be manifesting something in that moment that would be self-destructive that a coach would never see, I would never think to tell them, I would not even know that's the fish in the water and then go, hey look at that thing you're doing right now and when you're caught in the moment 
there's surprise there's like oh shit like that just <laughs> that just happened and they can't deny it and i i can't go and tell my coach a prettier story about it um a good coach in fact that's part of what i end up having to do with people is help like okay go back to this moment tell me what actually happened because they're gonna they they have already deleted things um this gets a little off topic but to have people around me that are are skilled are in it with me care about the same things then we become real real allies and allies and friends and i distinguish the two a little bit because when you mix out with friend they may always do things that look friendly now i make it a categorical point when i do public speaking which is a lot more rare uh, these days for various reasons but when i do um, I, I make it a point to say that my motivation in the world is to go out there and just make cooler friends and just make have richer friendships because that's why i got into business in the first place and down the line we forget that it, it starts becoming about how much money can you make, how many clients can you make how many this can you make that can you make what what's the acquisition of the value of what you're doing um, and how, how are you measuring that when in actual fact my motivation was always measured by the interesting people the interesting conversations i got to have hence the life optimize show and the, the friends i got to collect along the way and then if i can help them in some way as opposed to me thinking that i'm bringing value to that person i actually think of it as me bringing value to the friendship so it's not even about me serving that person or just serving myself and it's it's still an exchange in a sense but it's kind of like we're both bringing our value out of each other and there's just different roles two different roles going on one person in some situation might happen to be the quote-unquote client and one person might be the quote-unquote coach but in that situation the investment is actually happening in the friendship and that's that's what i found has really it's made me a lot lighter in my interactions it's it's made me step a lot lighter in the world funny enough i mean this is just a side note but funny enough it's somehow it's made me make more money as well mm. it, it's not made me make less money it's actually helped my business and and taken mm. it further but i'm not focusing on that either um and that's that's wonderful it's it's absolutely um divine almost mm. so speaking of which i'm quite curious to hear about um the, the community and the teacher that you allude to because we've spoken about this many times without going deep into it and without really understanding what it is but I know you've been on a very very um, rich spiritual ex exploration and you also mentioned the family system uh, after the personal system and the spiritual system after it so I do want to ask you about the family system and what that actually means a lot of people listening to this will not know they won't have any introduction to family systems or but health or any of that kind of stuff and maybe if we could do a really, really quick introduction to what that is, um, that would be really cool. And then I'm very curious to hear about that spiritual level and your journey with that. Those are two big questions that I'll try to make simple. Um, so my, my simple version of the family system is really, I think it's pretty well known that uh, people realize that they've been affected by what their parents teach them. You know, and what their parents believe about life that they will be affected by. I mean, in our most impressionable years, they are our gods, and everything they say is what we take take on as true, and how we see them live. So that part, I think, is becoming more and more prevalent and more accepted. 
Um, this family system level goes a little bit beyond that and and addresses the idea that there is a, a imprint or an impression that is sent through your parents, but they obviously had parents that affected them, and they had parents that affected them, and not only the direct transmission of like belief systems or ways of being, but certain events that might happen in in uh, generations past that were significant in some way, um, immigration, uh, suicide, a divorce, um, significant loss of fortune, an early death of a child, an early death of a parent. Those kinds of things have a little bit of a shockwave effect through a family system and they may reach us and impact us in ways that we may know or may know ways that we may not know. So I got interested and accessed that side of things through work called Family Constellations, which was formalized by a man named Bert Hellinger, a German psychotherapist priest hung out with the Zulus in Africa where he kind of got in touch with this idea. And then through my teacher in Marin that I alluded to earlier, um, and find that it's, it's a remarkable lens to see things through. It's the only place where I believe somewhat the adage that your problem may not belong to you, that it may not actually be yours. Um, and this work helps address that and, and unhook any of those ties that may be still waiting, waiting someone down. Um, so that work is sometimes done in groups. I do it one-on-one -on, -one on the phone as well. Um, but that's the family system level beyond your individual level. I mean, we talked about earlier, like cultural and religious, those are even layers outward, I think, from the family and originally. Um, your parents obviously had the most impact of you of anybody. So then I used to think of that as the model. There's your behaviors, there's your capabilities, there's your beliefs, there's your identity, there's your environment, and then there's your, um, your family system as another layer on top of that. So the work I'm currently involved with, the highest I know of, which is our relationship to that which gives and sustains our life. And how we operate as if, and we are in a way, we've been cut off from that virtually from birth, like we are in our mother's womb and we are totally dependent and surrendered and have nothing to do. And suddenly we're birthed out into this world and it is a huge separation not only physically from the mother but possibly from something else from which we came and not to go into challenge anyone's spiritual beliefs or do any of that but the basic level I would say is that we are we do not create the energy that's in our bodies that creates our life we do not create the the impulse to breathe our lungs or to beat our heart um, we do not create the life that's around us that is in all things and all nature and the whole universe. There's something there that courses through us as well. And we as human beings are, we live in a way that's disconnected from that. And this, this process I'm engaged with is the hardest thing, the most confronting thing and the ultimately most rewarding thing I've ever encountered 
after all the high-powered neurolinguistic things, the family constellations, the conversations, the um, communication skills, being an entrepreneur, anything like that is seems tiny in comparison to this process and basically removing all the things that have been added on, all the add-ons that are, you mentioned a few before, like the ego boosting, the self-importance, the um, our personal styles of being a a victim, being a um, being bossy, being like whatever it is that we've developed as our way of coping with this, mm. that we're all coping with this primal separation, this primal severing between us and that which sustains us, and everything from there is an add-on. So this is a process of subtraction not learning new ways to manipulate, not learning new ways to be a better, uh, have a better image or to look better to other people, but actually the, quite the opposite is to learn how to become our proper size, which is infinitesimally small. I'm, I'm reminded of it when I get up and, and uh, go outside at night to, use, to pee on a tree. <laughs> I guess that's where I go to the bathroom and look up at the stars. And it's, it's a little glimpse that I can actually see of how far away those are, how many there are, how vast this all is. And if I could actually see with perspective my size on this planet, one of seven, seven billion plus, that I am so tiny. I had this really wild experience the other day taking a shower where I was washing my face and I was really with the sensation of the water and the feeling of my hands on my face and, and like I was absorbed into it. And for then a moment I flashed and like in all of the known, in all of creation, even, even this planet, forget it, even beyond like the universe, in all of that, the only thing that I'm aware of right now is my hands touching the skin on my face. What fraction is that? Mm. It has to be one, one billion, million, trillion, like all the zeros you could put behind that of the actual experience of life that's happening right now. And that is an indicator a little bit of the, uh, more of my actual size in a metaphor and then to actually learn it and experience it on a day-to-day basis is the process that I'm in now. That's, that's really beautiful. Um, Obviously, people listening to this can't see this, but I'm looking at my phone right now, and I'm sorry, it's not because I'm checking a message. It's actually because there's this image that I saw a little while ago that, um, I mean, it's basically a bit of text, and I want to read it because it's so it's so poignant to uh, to what we're talking about here. How about I say a little more while you find it? Yeah, sure. <laughs> Thank you. So some things I alluded to earlier about this hunger to actually see our self-destructive process is that... I now have a clear picture of something that I believe that we all carry within us it is this longing for something that we have a feeling for. We may not be able to describe it. We may not be able to know what it is or even how to attain it. But when we're quiet enough, when we are not rushing around as much and we feel this pull, that pull perhaps to reunite that pull to perhaps to actually feel something that's beneath all the add-on 
that it's in us. And my hunger for that has gotten bigger and bigger to the extent that I, I really want to see what's in the way preventing me from having that. And that encapsulates then the, what I need to carry me through the moments when seeing that is a very tough pill to swallow, is very uncomfortable. I want to avoid it. I want to push it away. There are times I don't want to see it. But having that hunger, that paying attention, not because money is involved, but because something that feels as deep as I know how to feel longs for it and has for all of my life. And I've sought it in all kinds of different ways and sought it in ways that I think were taking me away from it instead of actually getting me closer. So that is the thrust behind this. And I have the utter good fortune. I have no idea how I got lucky enough to encounter this man that I am now, I now live with among mm -hmm. many other people. And it's not someone who's teaching thousands of people. He, there's about 20 of us around him because he knows that it takes that kind of intensity to be able to be there in the moments when someone is manifesting something that is totally destructive to them and for what they want. It seems almost seductive uh, when you read these things that, I don't know if seductive is the right word, but it's just, for me at least personally, I've always been extremely inspired by this idea of finding somebody I could turn to like that who will carry me through a period of my life to a higher state of um, introspection and, and self-awareness and mindfulness and understanding. Yeah. And I... I mean, I'm not really jealous, but, you know, I could facetiously say that I'm kind of jealous of you, but really, I guess I'm excited of this opportunity that you have. And I know that there would be many other people who would be really excited about this kind of opportunity, but they would never act on it if it came up because they're afraid of cutting themselves off from society or they're afraid of joining a commune. And I don't know if like what exactly your situation is with, um, with this community, but there's all that stigma associated with doing those kinds of things and even an, a 10-day silent retreat like Vipassana uh, freaks people out. Yeah. But then there are also a lot of people who just don't know where to look. They actually don't know where to find these kind of opportunities at all. And you said you don't know how you got so lucky to, to find this, but is it really something that you feel you just unconsciously manifested or is there a way that people can go and seek out these kind of opportunities to connect with such mentors and guides? I can't, I can answer one part of that, I think, okay. which is, um, even the way you said it, like, I'd want to find someone who could show me something and take me to a higher level yeah. for a time. Hmm. So I think life is offering this opportunity all the time. If we are paying attention, if we are going for what we want boldly, and that is, oh, I get shivers even thinking, feeling it of if there's anything that someone could take from this, this might be the most important thing, which is if you have an impulse that something will really do something for you, to go for it, to really go for it boldly so that you can find out what it does offer you and what it doesn't. And the more that someone can do that, the more I think they start to ascend. If there is a mountain to climb, quote unquote, they can start ascending it and the right people, they will, they will be looking for them so that they do show up they will know, they will be able to identify them it, because those people might be around you right now. But if you're not hungrily looking for them, they won't be interested and you won't, 
you might hear something about it. So I think your example of a commune or most people talk about it like, oh, is it a cult or whatever like that. Um, if that, if those fears of getting involved with something are that big, are bigger than your hunger, then you won't go near it mm-hmm. and won't be able to find out what is actually in it. And that then to me is a sign that your desire, not your, someone's desire is not that big. But if someone's desire is big and whatever it is, if they want to go and become, uh, you know, Dan Millman wanted to become an amazing gymnast and that in a way that got him a lot of things. But then he saw something that was better than that for him. My goals for time were to become a great tennis player. And I went for that. Mm-hmm. And to become a great coach, to become a great entrepreneur, to go for it. Because if you don't go for it, then you live with this idea that maybe that will do it for me. And as long as you keep thinking, maybe that will do it for me, then, and you're not doing it, you're stuck in limbo. Whether it be having the ideal relationship or having, having a lot of money, having the fame, the fortune, whatever it is, great health, until one has it. Uh, millionaires can tell you that money won't do it for you because they know, because they've been there. But a poor person can only use those words. They don't know it by experience. They don't necessarily need to become a millionaire, but they need to go for it if they believe that it will do something for them so they can actually verify it. If someone thinks alcohol is going to do it for them, in a way they need to go, they need to go boldly. Hopefully with enough perspective, maybe with other people to help them, to learn from it so it doesn't become repetitive because that's the other side of it then. If you do something and you go for it and just you simply keep repeating it, Mm. then you're a little bit in trouble because you're you're trying to get the, the same thing from it again and again and it can't do that ever again it yeah. can do it for a time and then it's just then you're staying safe and comfortable and life doesn't really reward that from what I've seen it rewards bold action going for it not knowing what's going to take place I watched this really remarkable documentary let's see if this fits called my life as a turkey and it was this man who had a passion he was studied the imprinting process and he really wanted to have a clutch of wild turkeys imprint on him as the mother and wild turkey eggs are really hard to find there's this whole story how he got them anyway this happened and he did this for a whole year basically he had no human contact he was the mother of this flock of turkeys wild turkeys wow. Remarkable documentary. So, what was it called? My life as a turkey. My life as a turkey. Turkey. Okay. Right. Yeah. And then at the end of the movie, I mean, I was just moved and touched. This guy was so humble in his approach and really inspired. And at the end, he said, "And then I wanted, I, I want to do it again with, um, like, some variable he wanted to change." And my heart sank. I just wanted to yell out, "No!" Like he had done something that brought him so much, and he wanted to go and repeat it. And it felt clear to me and the people I was with, like that repetition would be, would be destructive to him versus going boldly into the next, next phase. Mm. So for whatever I was able to do, I think there are some ways I've been bold in life, some other areas I haven't, but it's that boldness that kept, I kept going. Like, I'll give one example. So I've traveled a lot. I've been all over the world, uh, been on almost every continent. I think, yeah, every continent except Antarctica and spent many months, if not years, of my life on those different continents. Um, And what I now feel is that more traveling 
isn't going to bring that much more to me. It's nice. I recently went to Europe. I could see other trips like happening, but I'm not compelled by it. I don't have this like, I need to go see the world. And I see other people have that. Mm. Because I've been bold in that area, now I can put that aside. And the more things I can put aside, I have that somewhat with money. Um, able to put it aside where it's still useful I still need it and and have it in my life but I'm not compelled by it and when those compulsions start to diminish that allows this other hunger to start to come out that I think is in all of us I strongly believe it but people need to be where they're at because if you I tried to jump to that prematurely without going through some things and that I don't think was useful either I had uh, I had Ram Dass in my mind um, do you know, you know yeah. the story so that was my Dan Millman in a way. Like I wanted to go off to India and find a guru who was going to knock me over the head and, and everything was going to be great. Mm. Um, I never found that. I did a lot of other things. I had a lot of our teachers. Um, and then when I was least looking for it in my backyard in my city, uh, I was in a men's group and was feeling dissatisfied with a men's group. I'd done, that was my third or fourth men's group. Like I don't think I'm really getting anything from this. But there was a man there who saw me and he he noticed something so this is where this boldness comes out yeah he said to me one day you look like you are really comfortable you have good relationship you have a good career your money situation is good you don't bring that many problems to this group and he said i think you might be in a place where you need the next challenge and he said i have a i have a spiritual teacher who i've been with and i want you to come and meet him so it wasn't from my own doing. It was someone saw that I was in a place and he did not tell it to other people in the group. It was something that he saw in me that because I'd gone boldly for some things and I had some things worked out, I was in a place and it was absolutely true. I was becoming a little stagnant, really comfortable. Then it was about like, how can I become more comfortable? And that's not necessarily a, a growthful path. Mm. You can get nice things and be surrounded in a nice environment, and there's something wrong with that, but it doesn't mean that I'm actually expanding and growing as a human being. So he saw me there, and, and that was about two and a half years ago. And I don't see this as being a short-term game. I see this as I got to meet someone who sees the whole picture that I long for. And ain't nothing else that I know of. There's still things that I do. I have going out to do with sex. I have going out to do with speaking my mind more and being bold and other things that I left behind. I left behind sex because I was being a spiritual seeker and was, was celibate for seven years. And so things that I haven't traveled to, let's say, um, that I have to go back and pick up, but I can do that with a whole different perspective of going boldly for it so that that compulsion starts to diminish and this other one can come out even more fully and the teacher appeared when that happened well there's a lot of a lot of profound wisdom in everything that you said I feel like you really uh, you flowed in that expression and there's a lot of mm -hmm. profound wisdom in that flowing as well um, mm. th that, that's great I yeah I, I don't even know if, uh, if it makes sense to wish you well because it's just a it's a flowing, ongoing, continuing path of uh, of development, and it's. I mean, I congratulate you for mm -hmm. attracting that and manifesting it. Um, mm -hmm. I, I wish the same upon um, everyone else listening to this as well, who does have that hunger and does feel that maybe if they seek out more comfort, 
then somehow they, that will actually make them happier. But uh, obviously you and I know that those are two very separate things and they don't necessarily that, have to be... That's what someone believes, that the thing I most want to say is I need to go for a boldly. Well, exactly. Make, I was, make your comfort as big as you can. Yeah. So you know, you know what it can do and what it can't do. Because playing it halfway, you don't get that verification. I was, I was literally just going to say that as well. And I think that has been the most standout point for me and something that I've learned, um, I've taken away from this conversation uh, all the more. Uh, because it's it's really just not for someone else to decide. And I was thinking of this um, this old joke in my head, um, especially when you made the alcohol reference that, uh, you know, how they say if at first you don't succeed, um, try again. And mm-hmm. I remember reading on this T-shirt, I think it was once, and it said, if at first you don't succeed, so much for skydiving. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So, <laughs> so I, I think there are, um, there are certain situations where, um, yeah, you just, you know, that, that persistence thing needs to be taken. You need to take a step back from it and really consider if you want to try any, something at all. Yeah. I don't know if there's other examples like skydiving. Like, yeah. It, Anyway, I, I hope that it would be because there are other experiences that will feel like skydiving to people when they're actually not thre- life threatening. Yeah. Those are the ones that, if anyone can take something away of being bold there, that's where a big difference will be made. Hmm. But to know that it'll feel as life threatening, but to make sure you feel your feet on the ground <laughs> and that really, if you go and ask this person something or say this thing to that person or, um, fly to this country and try out something new or stay at home or go talk to your parents or who knows what the bold thing is yeah Uh, that most likely it's what one of my friends calls a paper tiger Mm. and it looks really scary and dangerous but when you go into it it's uh it's not made of much substance yeah i like that i like that something i encourage people all the time and i say this on almost every episode as well is to um, uh, to let go of your grip of judgment and, and sacredness um, you need to replace that with curiosity and if you go out into the world with you know, a real sense of curiosity then you'll start accessing more resources because your mind will expand to what is useful as opposed to what is right or wrong and now I feel like I can take that to the next level and really encourage people not just to be curious but to be curious boldly to be boldly mm. c- curious um, I, I really like that. Yeah, that's a fun to put together. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's no, I really enjoy it. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try that out for a bit. So I want, I want to um, still read what uh, I pulled up for you, and it's this yes. little text uh, meme thing that went around. You may have heard this already, but it basically says, before you judge others or claim any absolute truth, consider that you can see less than one percent of the electromagnetic spectrum and hear less than one percent of the acoustic spectrum. As you read this, you are traveling at 220 kilometers per second across the galaxy. 90% of the cells in your body carry their own microbial DNA and are not quote-unquote you. The atoms in your body are 99.999999% empty space, and none of them are the ones you were born with, but they all originated in the belly of a star. Human beings have 46 chromosomes, two less than the common potato. (laughs) <laughs> the existence <That's> <laughs> yeah <laughs> the existence of the rainbow depends on the conical photoreceptors in your eyes to animals without cones the rainbow does not exist uh. so you don't just look at a rainbow you create it uh. this is pretty amazing 
especially considering that all the beautiful colors you see represent less than 1% of the electromagnetic spectrum. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Hard to feel self-important if you take all that in. Yeah. Speaking of that uh, vastness that we were talking about. Yeah. Man, what else are we not seeing or hearing? I mean, I've really, I've had some experiences lately that show me what I gloss over. Hmm. Uh, and I mean, that's part of the tools and what my teacher is helping us to find is so much that we delete from our experience that's there all the time. It's humbling. Mm -hmm. I never knew that about the rainbow. That's, that's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> definitely something to ponder over. Yeah. Matthew, it's been very humbling having you on the show. We're just sort of running uh, short on time and uh, or just coming to time i guess uh, i i could talk with you forever it's um it's always a real pleasure um there's a question that i ask all the guests that come on the show just to kind of wrap up that i want to ask you as well uh before i ask that question uh, where can people find you find out more about you find more about the work that you're doing at all three of those levels and um and yeah basically how can people connect with you I think the best at this point is simply my email. If someone's really moved to reach out to me, um, I have a website and it's it's probably seven or eight years old. It's, uh, <laughs> it's it's not my focus these days, so it's more of a more of a momentum that keeps it there than because I actively work with it. Um, but my email is uh, Matthew M A T T H E W and at matthewblum.com and my last name is B-L-O-M and that's also my website matthewblum.com um, yeah and I'm open and available I don't know if uh, you know I'm I don't work with that many people anymore it's quite selective mm -hmm. and but if someone feels called and I think they get a good sense of me from this interview kind of where my attention and focus is and if that matches what they're hungry for then might be uh might be worth having a conversation uh yeah that's basically it for that cool yeah thank you so my question is for anyone listening who wants to optimize their business leadership and life um, or, or even in the case of this conversation i guess wants to tap into that vastness or become more self-aware about their smallness what are your top three tips well, I don't know if I'll get to three. The top one is what I was mentioning before is, um, oh, <laughs> there was a Bob Dylan song I heard recently, and um, I've not been in a Bob Dylan before. Oh, okay. I heard one of the songs, and the last line really struck me. Uh, it's The song is, It's All Right, Ma, and he says, It's all right, Ma. It's life and life only. And that last line, it's life and life only, really struck me of how, um, how important I make myself and things that I do and actions that I take and am I going to make a mistake. Really, what a lot of that has led to in my life is a, is a huge amount of carefulness. There are places I'm not careful, but there are places I definitely am. And that carefulness I think is needs to be really re-examined of how so many things that we are uh, suffering over and c 
cogitating and looping our thoughts around um, could be much simpler if we saw them for what they were that they're they may not be that important and even if they are the best thing to be able to do with them is to go boldly into something and then you can verify some things you can form experiments and the more and more you can do that with a perspective that can look at it with some honesty of what did take place and what didn't take place without as many of the preconceived notions like this bold curiosity we've been talking about um, I think in business absolutely like ideas of you have an impulse to call and talk to someone you want to launch this product you want to um, go speak at this event you like different things that you may even know what you could be doing but there's places where you think oh you're, you're not living it as if it's life and life only it's life and it's really serious or it's life and God what might happen um, and that's really a, uh, a small and probably distorted view so to be able to see it as life and life only and hopefully that that frees up a little space in there to be able to take steps that formerly were shrouded in fear were shrouded in uh, unfamiliarity were shrouded in um, I don't know what's going to happen so I better not touch that one that would be I think in any avenue the best thing I could say um, because as far as other things I don't know people's life's paths or what's best for them um, I know if I talk to them I can help them when they say what they want and we can look at what might be blocking that and maybe maybe even blocking them in what they say they want that's we don't always we don't always want what's best for us <laughs> is another place to look but I think the best way in terms of an interview or someone going out is the more you can proceed with it's life and life only this bold curiosity into whatever there's a there's a quote at the beginning of a um, Herman Hess book Herman Hess uh, book named called Damien he said um, each of us is a unique experiment on the behalf of the creator and with that uniqueness and that experiment um, we have certain things that are coursing through us that other people do not and if we do not let those out it is denying us the experience we want and it seems from my limited perspective to deny creation a little bit of why we're here in the first place so the more that that can flow through you and come out in your unique way even if it's unpopular or you think it's not going to be accepted you might find it's better more accepted than what you're currently doing <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> I'll throw one more quote in there this is a, a quote barrage at the end here um, a friend of mine did this um, montage of paintings of rock stars who died early and one of them was Kurt, Kurt Cobain from Nirvana mm -hmm. and his quote that she put on this uh, painting was I'd rather be hated for being who I am and love for being who I'm not and that struck a chord for me of a lot of what I've been talking about is the carefulness the um, limiting one's expression often comes because we're trying to get love for what we're not mm. but there's a very natural and relaxing place of letting out what these impulses are what's coming through you and not stopping them not <clears throat> kind of gripping them and trying to force them into something else but if those can come out so much more can happen and it's also uh, 
I can say this through my experience now, it relieves a lot of the suffering, a lot of the stress, a lot of the anxiety, because all that is generated when we're trying to manage and manipulate our, our life. And when there's less managing, less manipulation, it comes out and it is energizing, it is alive. It is sometimes a little scary because that aliveness is exciting, but man, it can be an exhilarating ride to be on. Now you don't need to do any skydiving. You don't need to go to any roller coasters. Your life is one big, great ride to let up your hands and start screaming, squealing <laughs> with delight. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, Matthew. It's, it's been an exhilarating uh, ride just having this conversation. And I'm glad we finally got there. And yeah, maybe uh, sometime in the future as you progress on your journey and I progress on the journey and hopefully the show continues to progress on its journey, uh, we can come back together again and have another conversation and, um, and, and, and share with listeners uh, where we're all at. And uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people will take a lot away from this. So, so thank you. Okay. I hope it serves whatever it serves. <laughs> <laughs> Ditto. Yeah. All right. Thanks for the opportunity to talk all this out. It's fun to explore even some of my own thoughts about some of the topics that I haven't worked out and uh, also just say some things that I've come to verify and are really, really important to me now. And for uh, anyone else who hears it, hopefully it inspires them on their journey too. I'm, I'm sure it will. My, my pleasure. Darkness at the break of noon Shadows even the silver spoon The handmade blade, the child's balloon Eclipses both the sun and moon To understand you know too soon There's no sense in trying As pointed threats they bluff with scorn Suicide remarks are torn From the fool's gold mouthpiece the hollow horn Plays wasted words proves to warn That he not busy being born is busy dying Temptation's page flies out the door You follow, find yourself at war Watch waterfalls of pity roar You feel to moan, but unlike before You discover that you'd just be one more person crying So don't fear if you hear A foreign sound to your ear It's all right, Ma. I'm only sighing. As some warn victory, some downfall. Private reasons, great or small, can be seen in the eyes of those that call to make all that should be killed to crawl. While others say, don't hate nothing at all except hatred. Disillusioned words like bullets bark as human gods aim for their mark Make everything from toy guns that spark to flesh-colored Christs that glow in the dark It's easy to see without looking too far that not much is really sacred Well, pre 
preachers preach of evil fates Teachers teach that knowledge weights Can lead to hundred dollar plates Goodness hides behind its gates But even the president of the United States Sometimes must have to stand naked Though the rules of the road Have been lodged It's only people's games That you got to dodge And it's all right, Ma I can make it Advertising signs that con you into thinking you're the one That can do what's never been done That can win what's never been won Meantime, life outside goes on all around you You lose yourself, you reappear You suddenly find you got nothing to fear Alone you stand with nobody near When a trembling distant voice unclear Startles your sleeping ears to hear That somebody thinks they really found you A question in your eyes is lit Yet you know there is no answer fit To satisfy and show you not to quit To keep it in your mind and not forget That it is not he or she or them or it That you belong to Though the masters make the rules For the wise men and the fools I got nothing more To live up to For them that must bow down to authority That they do not respect in any degree Who despise their jobs, their destiny Speak jealously of them that are free Cultivate what they do to be Nothing more than something they invest in While some on principles baptized to strict party platform ties Social clubs and drag disguise Outsiders they can freely criticize Tell nothing's helped you to idolize And say God bless him While one who sings with his tongue on fire Gargles in the rat race choir Bent out of shape from society's pliers Cares not to come up any higher But rather get you down in a hole that he's in But I mean no harm Nor put fault On anyone Living in a vault But it's alright, Ma If I can't please him Old lady judges watch people in pairs Limited in sex they dare To tell fake morals, insult and stare While money doesn't talk, it swears Obscenity, who really cares? Propaganda, all is phony
Well, them that defend what they cannot see with killer's pride, security, it blows their minds most bitterly. For them to think death's honesty won't fall upon them naturally, life sometimes must get lonely. My eyes collide head on with stuffed graveyards, false goals I scuff at pettiness which plays so rough. Walk upside down inside handcuffs, kick my legs to crash it off, say, all right, I've had enough, what else can you show me? And if my thought dreams could be seen, they'd probably put my head in a guillotine But it's alright, ma It's life and life only